0: Well, let's state the obvious. That's a lot of Holy Spirit in just two verses, right? I I think Luke's point is obvious. It was the Holy Spirit who gave birth to the missionary movement. This wasn't Paul's idea or Barnabas's idea or Simeon's idea. This was the Holy Spirit's idea. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of missions. I think that is Luke's point, and we should be careful not to miss it.
1: Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of mission. That's kind of the theme for the next several chapters in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is calling out people to go. The Holy Spirit is opening eyes. And the Holy Spirit is striking other people blind. He is all over this story. And he is clearly the person and power behind the remarkable growth and expansion of the early church. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter.
0: Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts 13. The focus of this chapter is back up in Antioch. Chapter 12 brought us up to speed on events happening down in Jerusalem and then also served to explain how the relief money got from Antioch down to Jerusalem and then how John Mark got from Jerusalem up to Antioch. With all of that sorted out, we return now to the hub of the missionary movement. The church in Antioch seems to have had one foot in the Jewish world and one foot in the Gentile world. And as a result, it was ideally positioned to serve as a launching pad for the gospel into every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, as contemporary readers, we're probably very interested in understanding precisely how to differentiate those terms, prophets and teachers, but we won't be greatly helped by this passage. John Stott says here, Luke explains neither how he understood the distinction between these ministries, nor whether all five men exercised both. Or, as some have suggested, the first three were prophets and the last two teachers, what he does tell us is their names. And I think that's true. The book of Acts probably does not supply enough content for us to precisely define and differentiate those terms. Obviously, they overlap to some extent, but we just can't and probably shouldn't say much more than that here. What we can say is that the church in Antioch had a plurality of leaders. And I think that's worth noticing. I'm not saying that we should call this an elders board, but I am saying that there wasn't just one leader shaping the church in his own image. There are five men mentioned here, and I think that is helpful for us to see. I think we should also notice the remarkable diversity of this leadership team, Barnabas was a Levite. Luke already told us that. Saul Paul was a Roman Jew. Simeon, who was called Niger, that word means black-skinned, so he was obviously African of some kind. Lucius of Cyrene was also African. Uh, Roman Cyrenaica uh, was a province on the north coast of Africa in modern-day Libya. Then we have Menaean, obviously some sort of childhood friend to Herod the Tetrarch. That's a very diverse group they came from different races, different regions, and different social strata. I think that ought to be our major takeaway from this verse. Verse 2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Well, let's state the obvious. That's a lot of Holy Spirit in just two verses, right? I I think Luke's point is obvious. It was the Holy Spirit who gave birth to the missionary movement. This wasn't Paul's idea or Barnabas's idea or Simeon's idea. This was the Holy Spirit's idea. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of missions. I think that is Luke's point, and we should be careful not to miss it. I think Luke also means to say something here about how we discern the Spirit's will. I think we could cautiously say that when we are together as a plurality of Christian people in worship and spiritual discipline, we are more likely to perceive the movements and directions of the Holy Spirit. In his gospel and and also in the Acts of the Apostle, Luke has a secondary interest in describing Christian piety. And I think we can be fairly Confident in identifying this story as an example of that. Verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now it's tempting to use these stories to develop a sort of pattern or blueprint or model for effective Christian mission. But we should probably note that the apostle Paul himself seems to have altered his strategy in his second and third journeys. The first time around in this first journey, Paul seems to move very quickly from town to town. But in the second and third Trips, he spends much more time in specific strategic urban centers. So I think some of what we are seeing here is Paul developing a strategy. And so we should probably hold off on any hard conclusions and applications until later in the book of Acts. For now, we can say this we can observe that Paul and Barnabas went where they had some local connections. Barnabas was from the island of Cyprus. And they began in the Jewish synagogues, as well as preaching anywhere else they were given opportunity. We can also observe that the Lord
1: supported their work with continuing signs and wonders. Hey, Pastor Paul, let me jump in here, because what you said there is kind of the 900-pound gorilla in the room. The Book of Acts does read like a supernatural book. As you said at the beginning, the Holy Spirit is all over this story, and so I guess the question I have and I imagine a number of our listeners would have as well, is the extent to which we should expect that kind of involvement in our mission work today. Was the involvement of the Holy Spirit in this generation foundational, or was it normative? Was he doing something unique to get this whole movement off the ground, or is he showing us how things are supposed to be and will be if we ever get our acting gear as the people of God? What are we supposed to do with these stories? Yeah, that's a good
0: question. And it's been one of the most common debates over the course of recent Christian history. Listen, I think obviously there's a sense in which something special, something foundational is happening in the book of Acts. But then later in the New Testament, particularly in the pastoral epistles, we seem to get the sense that there is a transition from foundational to normative. So what do you mean by that? Well, we don't see the Apostle Paul, for example, telling Timothy or Titus to assert their authority in the church by doing signs and wonders. Rather, we see him telling them to faithfully preach the Bible and to grow up in their personal maturity. So that's different. Apostles demonstrated their authority with signs and wonders. Pastors and elders apparently do it by preaching faithfully and growing in sanctification. That's different. The book of Acts shows us the overlap of the ages, you might say, from foundational to normative. And so I think we do have to factor that reality in as we're working our way through the story. Some of what we're seeing is clearly foundational. Sometimes God is throwing up a flare to mark something off as a true work and an authoritative word.
1: Yeah, I mean, you talked a couple episodes ago about how many of the miracles— peter did were really similar to the ones that jesus did
0: yeah amazingly similar so that was god saying hey the church is carrying on the ministry of jesus the apostles are the authorized spokespersons of jesus so there were these road flares marking this off as the path that leads to abundant and eternal life
1: but that doesn't mean i should be able to take a dead person by the hand and raise them up well that's where this gets complicated Mm -hmm. right in the
0: epistle of james there is a, a definite sense that praying for healing is still supposed to be a part of the life and culture of the church, but it doesn't sound like those miracles we were just talking about a moment ago. James says, this is James 5, 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. okay. Well, that sounds a little more institutional than me just grabbing a dead lady by the hand and saying, Tabitha, arise. That's not the same as someone taking my handkerchief and healing a lame man. This is the elders of the church getting together and praying and anointing with oil and calling out to God for mercy. So that, that's kind of the same, but also kind of different. So I guess I would say that we can and should still expect spiritual guidance and we can and we should still expect acts of mercy and acts of healing but they might come in more ordinary ways and they might not come as frequently because the text does seem to suggest that part of the reason there was so much of this sort of activity and of such a spectacular nature is because of this sign function. These events did function to mark off the church as the new locus of God's saving power and presence, like how you put flashing lights by an off-ramp on the highway, but then maybe not for every mile of the road after that. You mark the start or the entrance in
1: different ways than you do the road that follows. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And I think it saves us from wondering, what's wrong with my church? Why haven't dead people been coming back to life at our funerals? Yeah, you can get into
0: trouble when you feel like this should be happening every day. It didn't even happen every day in the Bible. There are lots of really long gaps in the biblical storyline where people were just being faithful and obedient, and the kingdom of God was growing slowly and surely like a mustard seed.
1: Yes, and I think that's a very helpful reminder for us. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to
0: Perga in Pamphylia. Let's just notice here that Luke is now referring to Saul as Paul. He told us in verse 9 of this chapter that Saul was also called Paul, and now he's making the switch. This has nothing to do with Paul's conversion. Paul was converted a long time ago. If it has to do with anything, it probably has to do with the fact that Paul is now pressing deeper into Gentile territory, and so Luke feels it appropriate now to refer to him by his Roman Gentile name. Paul, by the way, is his last name or family name, not his personal name. He was Mr. Paul, and he is abroad now in the Gentile world. Mr. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos on the island of Cyprus and came to Perga in Pamphylia on the shores of Asia Minor. Verse 13 continues, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, we aren't told why John Mark left them at this stage of the journey and returned back to Jerusalem. The most logical answer is that he got cold feet. Paul seemed to feel that his departure disqualified him from going on the next trip. So from that, I think we can assume that he wasn't sick. He must have just lost his nerve. He was a young man and he was a a rich man. And maybe he just wasn't ready for this kind of rigorous sacrificial ministry. Happily, he appears to have grown up, and Paul claims him as a beloved co-worker later on in life. He says that in 2 Timothy 4.11. So, let this story remind us that people who get off to a bad start in ministry can end very well. As a former dysfunctional youth pastor, I find that very encouraging. We should also point out that Antioch and Pisidia is not the same as the Antioch in Syria that sent out Barnabas and Paul in the first place. This Antioch is many, many miles to the north and to the west. The story continues in the second half of verse 14. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. This passage is actually very important from a historical perspective. It is one of the earliest descriptions we have of a Jewish synagogue service in the first century AD. About this service and Luke's description of it, I. Howard Marshall says this. He says After the opening prayers, not mentioned here, the central act was a reading from the law, i.e., the first five books of the Old Testament. This was followed by a lesson from the prophets. And then, if there was a competent person present, a sermon related to the lessons, quote. So obviously, Paul and Barnabas were both considered competent persons. And so the synagogue rulers invited them to bring the sermon. Verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now, let me just say a quick word on that phrase, you who fear God. Most scholars understand this as a technical term referring to Gentile people who worship the God of Israel but who did not formally convert and undergo circumcision. They're often called the Phobuminoi, which means in Greek, the God-fearers. We might today call them adherents. They were not full members of the covenant community, but they were kind of you know sniffing around the margins and thinking about coming all the way in. Scholars say that it was from this group, that the early church drew many of its converts, verse 17. Paul's sermon continues, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God and his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul's sermon, obviously, greatly resembles the sermon preached by Stephen way back in Acts 7. It also resembles, in many ways, the sermon preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost. Like those sermons, it is drawn from the Old Testament. And, of course, we expect that here because the sermon was supposed to relate to the synagogue readings. But it was drawn from the Old Testament such that the entire story of ethnic Israel pointed forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, as with Peter's sermon, as with stephen's sermon the new testament apostles read the old testament christologically meaning that they understood everything in it to point to the person and work of jesus christ the law showed us the holiness of god and the sinfulness of people the the history portions told us about the repeated failures of the covenant community to abide by their commitments the the prophet's told us to expect a prophet like Moses, a suffering servant, and a son of David. All these stories, all these verses ought to have prepared the people of Jerusalem to see and celebrate Jesus as their Messiah, prophet, Savior, and King, but they rejected him. And Paul is warning these people not to repeat that mistake. Don't be a scoffer. Don't be like those folks in Jerusalem. Accept what God is offering forgiveness of sins, and freedom from condemnation. That's what's on the table, Paul says. For everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, So here we see that many Jews were converted, also many proselytes, uh, Gentile folks who had previously converted to Judaism. They also converted now to Christianity. And then finally, in verses 48 and forward, we're told that many Gentiles, many God-fearers, we assume, were also repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. I love the expression that Luke uses to summarize this great time of harvest. He says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's an interesting phrase. D.A. Carson, in his wonderful little uh, daily devotional on this text, says, There is no biblical passage that speaks of accepting Jesus as your personal Savior, he puts in brackets, though the notion itself is not entirely wrong, closed bracket. So why do many adopt this expression and never speak in the terms of verse 48, quote? That's a good question. Now, Carson isn't saying that we should never speak of accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but he is suggesting that perhaps we would nurture fewer theological distortions in our churches if we tempered that expression with some other expressions taken directly from the pages of the Bible. Phrases like this one. Phrases that remind us that even though there's a great deal of human activity in this story, there are mission trips and and, and preaching sermons from the Bible and, and, and people responding negatively and positively, even still at the end of the day, salvation is always a gracious work of a sovereign Lord. He goes first. He opens hearts. He unstops ears. He opens eyes. And he appoints people To eternal life. Thanks be to God.
1: Pastor Paul, I want to go back to something you were talking about there near the end of the program audio. You said, citing verse 48, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That raises an awful lot of questions in my mind. Were there people there who were not appointed to eternal life? And if so, why not so? I feel like we may have just stepped on a theological landmine here, but can you unpack that phrase a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. And and that's a nice easy question for
0: the you know, last twenty five seconds of the program. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it is a good question. And and it is one that gets asked a lot. Look, for the sake of time, let me just say this. God always goes first. It may feel to us as if we started looking and and we wrestled with the issues and we made an important decision. And all of that is true. And yet, if we look a little closer, I think we will see that actually God was at work behind the scenes. There, There was that grandmother who read us Bible stories. There was that neighbor who always said she was praying for us. So it may have felt like we were taking the initiative, but in fact, God was working way further back in the story than we're capable of seeing. God is the hero of every salvation story from start to finish. So let's put that out there. And, and then as to the line about as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, I think what Luke is saying there is that he can't see into a person's heart. But what he can see is who responded in faith to the gospel invitation. Those who were prepared by God, those who had had their eyes open, those who had had their ears dug out, they heard and they responded. The gospel is like a dog whistle. Those who are God's people respond. They hear, they see, they believe, they come forth, and they follow.
1: Thanks be to God. Yes, amen to that. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.